Hello, everyone. This is Coach Aaron Saft in the Running is Life podcast. I just had a great conversation with Kendra Miller. She is a registered dietitian um, and has a, a sports dietitian um, certification as well. Uh, degree, excuse me, degree. I don't mean to demean her, <laughs> her, uh, her hard work by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but Kendra and I had a wonderful conversation um, about eating disorders, disordered eating, low energy availability, and our nutrition as uh, endurance athletes. So a lot in this conversation, as we always do with our dietitians um, that come on this podcast and nutritionists, uh, to that matter, uh, there's just so much that we can learn. And as we continue to research and understand uh, nutrition and its impact on us, uh, things change and evolve and we learn and we grow. And that's what this conversation is about, um, recognizing you know, potential eating disorders and what they can do to us or even disordered eating or lower energy availability. Um, so I really hope that you take something away from this conversation. Um, Kendra's contacts are all in the show notes. So if you have questions, feel free to reach out to her. She is a wonderful resource. Uh, so with that, enjoy this conversation with Kendra Miller. I'd like to start by welcoming Kendra Miller to the podcast. Kendra, thank you for joining me. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It is awesome. Kendra connected with me. We've actually connected quite a few times over email, but this is the first time we've really got to connect, uh, well, at least virtually. So <laughs> thanks for coming on. Um, Kendra, let's start with just uh, a bit about you. Give us your your background and, and experiences and where you come from. Okay. I'm a registered dietitian. I'm also a board certified sports fan. Gosh, what's the term? I just went blank on it now that I'm like, uh, recently board certified specialist in sports dietetics. And so with that, that's kind of been a build up throughout the years. I, you know, starting way back when I was a collegiate dancer. And so I danced in Palm Squad and uh, a company and got into the field of nutrition through dancing in my high school years. And so I was actually never a runner. <laughs> and that's something that kind of came later on down the road whenever I felt that I couldn't dance anymore and a professional career was not my future. With that, I moved to Western Alaska and spent 10 years out there. Um, met my husband, had a family, uh, practiced many different fields of nutrition, everything from diabetes management um, to prenatal and postpartum care, pediatrics, food service management, you name it. So I got a broad range of experience from that. But when I had kids, I stayed home. And with that, went into private practice, started seeing more athletes and some specifically some very unique athletes at that. And so pursued that. And that started in 2015. And here I am today, have been seeing individuals since then, specifically for sports nutrition, anything that means I say that very broadly, because <laughs> When people come to me for sports nutrition, they're coming for me to me as a you know majority weight loss. Maybe it's an eating disorder. Maybe it's um, you know a diagnosis of some hormone disruption. Um, things along those lines. So it's a broad range, but I love working with people who are motivated to move. Is really the summary of it. <laughs> yes, and as we've discussed previously in this podcast, nutrition can be such a huge piece of endurance athletics. Uh, so it's um, this topic is very relevant because as you shared with me prior to our uh, starting the recording of this, we've got the National Eating Disorder Awareness Week coming up at the end of February. So um, what is that 
um, you know, that, that piece of it, the awareness piece, where, where do you see us right now? Um, this is a topic eating disorders that, you know, it, it's, it's kind of evolved over time and it covers, um, a number of different pieces, um, which, you know, we have, um, as we can discuss, uh, eating disorders, disordered eating, low energy availability. So where do you see it in the, uh, the current athletics? Um, what does that look like today? Well, uh, interesting you bring it up because I was doing some research before getting on the podcast here. And there was a recent study that came out last month, uh, in the international journal of exercise science, and it was reviewing low energy availability, disordered eating, exercise dependence, and fueling strategies in trail runners. And they had some really interesting data that came out. They found that 43% of runners were at risk for low energy availability. Um, almost half of the females that they surveyed were, um, 43% were at risk for disordered eating or significant um, in that regard. It was more difficult to actually measure males versus females because they weren't taking into consideration menstrual cycle, which is a huge indicator there. So there's more research needed, but we recognize from these results that it is prevalent and it is something that we need to be aware of, even um, as we're running and may feel like, hey, I have this under control. The reality is, is that it's just not the case for almost half of the individuals there. And it's, I mean, eating disorders, um, if, if we can just start with um, the term itself, can we define that a little bit more um, so we yeah. get more specific as to what exactly we're talking about? So eating disorders, they're real life-threatening mental and physical illnesses that can potentially lead to fatal consequences. They involve emotions, attitudes, behaviors surrounding weight, food, size, and everything that impairs major functionings of life. Um, we tend to think that there is a single cause for an eating disorder, but the reality is, is that there's many contributing factors that lead to eating disorders or disordered eating that we need to just be aware of. Um, other things that we need to make sure that we recognize are that it's, it doesn't just affect one person. There's, you know, eating disorders can go undiagnosed in a broad spectrum of people. We see it a lot in runners. We see it a lot in wrestlers and dancers and other fields of athleticism, but the reality is, is it's kind of this baseline in our culture that it's there and we need to recognize that um, it can happen to anyone and there's no specific fault of anyone either. So a lot of times I see that eating disorders are placed on the individual, that responsibility or that blame, that shame. Um, and the reality is, is that we're all contributing to it. And so our environments, um, you know, our genetics, our social factors, all of these things really do play an impact on disordered eating and how we manage those. And if we're going to be effective at it or not. Right. Um, and just to kind of go even further, can you briefly describe the difference between an eating disorder, uh, a disordered eating and, um, lower energy availability? Yeah. So I don't know the technical definitions for it, so I'm going to be oh, without fine. looking that up, but I can broadly yeah. tell you like eating disorders have a very specific diagnosis, specifically like you have anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, or ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. We also have this broad range of spectrums for other specified feeding and eating disorders, as well as unspecified feeding and eating disorders. So, you know, if we're getting to a technical term for it, if I was going to, you know, work with a physician to die as a diagnosis code, 
there's those specific ones. So those are what we would consider disordered eat or eating disorders specifically. Then we have disordered eating. Disordered eating is going to be just that. It's a disordered way of eating, a disordered way of intaking your food. Maybe it's someone who, you know, fasts periodically and doesn't have a routine to it or a methodology for it. Or maybe it's someone who, you know, goes on different fad diets um, very frequently or, you know, you name it. <laughs> a disordered eating is, you know, a, a way of eating that does not work with the human biology and metabolism is my general way of saying that. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, low energy availability and low energy availability. Um, those are going to be more of that precursor to um, disordered eating or eating disorder diagnoses. And so with that, we're going to find, um, you know, decreased muscle strength, decreased um, glycogen stores, decreased um, concentration, irritability, depression, you know, these are all things that can impact our performance. And those are things that we look for whenever looking at low energy availability and kind of some of those consequences, if you will. You mentioned metabolism, and I think that's something that's um, underdefined. We use the term metabolism quite frequently, you know, in our vocabulary, but I'm not sure everybody understands exactly what your metabolism is. So can we start there and just kind of talk about what is the metabolism and, you know, how does it function? You know, what happens over the course of our lifespan with metabolism? I mean, that's, I think, a good starting point for some of this conversation. That's great. Um, so again, I don't know the technical definition for it. What I use in practice as a dietitian, um, metabolism is how we process our food in order to access the energy in the form of macronutrients. We have fat, protein, carbohydrates, as well as alcohol, if we're considering that one as well, and it's including water. But it also breaks down into those micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals that can impact, you know, how, how well we, um, we do process the, the energy that we are receiving. As we go throughout life, um, our metabolism slows as we age. Uh, there's certain calculations that I use in practice to determine, you know, your basal metabolic rate, what you are burning, if you will, this method of converting food to uh, energy sources in our body. And, you know, what is that at baseline? If you are sedentary, laying on a table and just, mm -hmm. you know, daily body function, that is your basal metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. And so we use that and it differs for everyone. There's a lot of different factors that can impact that, um, your fitness level, your health, what you've had, if you've had caffeine, um, there's lots of different things that can impact this. Um, but then we add on an activity factor. And so, you know, what are you doing in daily day life? Um, are you, you know, are you exercising an hour plus per day? Are you sedentary? Are you, you know, are you a fidgeter? Like non-exercise activities also play important roles in determining one's metabolism, if you will. So metabolism is just a broad word to describe how we're utilizing the energy in our body. And that's how I use it in practice. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then you had also uh, mentioned, uh, you know, a physician, would diagnose somebody with an eating disorder. Um, is there a, is it a primary care physician? Who would be the best person to kind of diagnose an eating disorder? Typically the person that would diagnose it is going to be the primary care physician. Okay. Um, there are others that may refer on specifically, you know, if I had a, a patient that came to me and asked about it, or if I had concerns over eating disorders or disorder eating behavior, 
I would work with their primary care physician. As a dietitian, I cannot diagnose anyone, sure. but I can work off of the diagnosis codes or technical terms from a physician provider and work with them within a team. That team is not just going to include me and the provider. It's also going to include the family members, the coaches. If it is an athlete that I'm working with, it's going to hopefully include a mental health therapist. Because as I mentioned earlier, you know, eating disorders are not concentrated into just one realm of an individual. It's not just, okay, you need to eat more food. This is going to solve your problems. Like that's not going to happen. So you have to think about, okay, what are all these other factors that are impacting individuals' choices and lifestyle and environment? And so we have to work as a team in order to impact um, this individual's life and work through this eating disorder. Very good. And what are the potential risks of an undiagnosed eating disorder? Um, there's all kinds. Um, you know, originally, what many of us were familiar with, especially, you know, early on in the years, uh, was that female athlete triad that was going to be, you know, loss of menstrual function, um, decreased bone health, and, you know, low energy. Um, now we're right. Rec- recognizing that, you know, there's going to be a suppressed immune system. In addition to that, maybe you're going to have GI issues. I see a lot of this with runners is they're coming to me with significant GI issues and they're not eating enough. Um, when it comes down to it, we start analyzing what their food intake is and what their energy requirements are. So GI issues are another one. Cardiovascular health is going to be a big one. Um, looking at that, I'm going to see, you know, psychological changes, physiological changes, Maybe hair growth is going to be impacted. Blood health. I'm looking at iron levels. A lot of times we're going to see anemia or iron depletion. Their metabolism is going to slow. We're going to feel, you know, one might feel colder more frequently, for example, trying to heat the body up. Um, there's going to be changes to the endocrine system and all kinds of other various things that are going to happen that you can't just be pinpointed to one. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of times that when I see them, it's already, you know, they've already experienced some of these symptoms. And like, I, I need to, I need help with my GI system. They're not coming to me and saying, Hey, I'm, I have some disordered eating. I would like some help with this. No, it's like, Hey, I want to run better. I want to have, you know, more energy and my stomach not to hurt. How can I do this? Yeah. And so that's typically what we see. And we kind of have to work backwards most of the time. Is there a typical age that you start to see some of these, um, you know, uh, I hate, I hesitate to call them symptoms, but, um, you know, characteristics, yeah, yeah. consequences that, that start to present themselves. To be honest, no, uh, they can happen at any age, um, any individual, any race, any, um, gender they're there. And so it's just, it's very individualized. I think we tend to forget that. And, you know, uh, you started to mention some of the things that might pop up, some of the perhaps red flags that might suggest an eating disorder. What are some of the big ones that people can look out for to say, oh, I, I may need to consult with my physician? Um, a lot of times I, I look at injuries, um, specifically with runners. Um, if they're having frequent injuries and can't really pinpoint, oh, why am I having this? You know, it's not like you tripped down the hill and busted your knee like that. Okay. That, that has a root cause to it. We know what happened there, but right. maybe we're having, you know, some frequent shin splints, or maybe we have um, some, uh, a stress fracture and we're f- frequently getting these and we're like, what's going on? 
So those are some typical reasons that I see specifically for runners. Another thing I tend to see a lot, a lot more of um, is iron deficiency, iron deficiency anemia, um, even just, you know, some iron depletion too. So those are kind of the precursor steps there before we have this full on um, complication, if you will. Right on. Okay. Um, and then once this has, you know, become a diagnosis of an eating disorder or even disordered eating, uh, how do you go about, um, you know, facilitating help? Where, where do you begin? Um, before anything, it's, you know, you meet with the individual. I think it starts with, you know, education. Um, if they're coming to me, for example, and they've already had some of these symptoms, if you will, um, then we're going to talk about, okay, what does your typical intake look like? What are your goals? What are your primary goals? And, you know, for a hypothetical situation, I'd say I have a female runner coming to me mid forties and she's like, you know, I just want to not be tired. I want to have a lot of energy. I have kids that I'm trying to manage all the time, but I have these, uh, these goals. I want to run this race here in three months, but I just don't have enough energy to do it. Can you help me? And so then we start and we, we assess diet intake, we assess exercise, and we realize that, oh, there's not enough fuel in here to, you know, make it through. And maybe we look at her specific runs and we say, okay, you know, you're doing really good fueling up before your run and your recovery looks great, but you know, you're only getting 30 grams of carbohydrate for this three hour run every hour. Like that's significantly underfeeding and that's going to be impacting your energy and long-term you know, performance. And so let's get that up. And so that's just one minor thing that we can see when it comes to like low energy availability or something along those lines too. Um, there is a very prominent ultra runner that came out about having a binge eating, you know, uh, disorder. What about that end of the spectrum? What, what does that look like? I don't see as much of that personally, not to say that it doesn't happen. Um, with the binge eating disorders, um, more often it's a significant time that you're spent, um, uh, eating a large portion of food or intaking a large portion of food. It doesn't always complement with purging. That's more of that bulimia aspect of it. Right. Um, so the binge eating is this a large portion at any one given time. Again, we look at those root causes of it. So I'm all for looking at that and say, okay, like this is the, this is a symptom of something deeper. And with most disordered eating, that is the case is that it's a symptom of something else. And we need to figure out what that underlying root cause is before we can really impact the behavior long-term. And so looking at that for, especially for binge eating, um, I've seen to be most effective. Okay. Um, so, and to your comfort level, it's, it seems to affect a lot of runners as, you know, before we started talking, it was, I saw a lot in my collegiate athletics, you know, on, mm -hmm. on my running team on both genders, both sides, Yeah. Uh, you know, why do we see it so commonly in runners, um, you know, or endurance athletes or any athletes for that matter, <laughs> why is it so prevalent? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with our culture and this preconceived notion that lighters faster. And uh, there's been so much research that's come out later saying that, you know, your strength to power ratio, if you will, is so much better whenever you do have muscle mass and when you do have this strength to carry on, but it hasn't been that way for so long and the culture is just now changing. And so we still have this in mind that, you know, lighter is faster. And if I was just eat less then I can run faster. And so if we look at these goals, then that's where we find it. In addition to that, if we're looking at collegiate runners, we're also looking at peer groups too, 
we are looking at, oh, my friend's doing this. I need to be like her. I see that she's faster or, Hey, I see that he's, you know, he, he gets up, he does this and, you know, he's beating me every time. Like I need to be like him. So it's a mimicking approach as well. So that happens a lot, especially in college athletics, or it's a way to handle stress, mm-hmm. you know, college athletes, they're not only under the pressure to perform on the field or track or um, anywhere else, but they're also expected to perform in the classroom too. And so we have these extra pressures to perform academically, as well as learning to adjust to a drastic change living outside the home. So we do see an uptake at that point, and it's therefore harder to kind of alleviate that in the future. There was another study done back in, I guess it was May of 2022, and it found that those um, elite female runners competing for the U.S. 2020 Olympic marathon trials, um, 32% of those had previously had an eating disorder, while 6% reported a current eating disorder. So it's still prevalent. It lingers on. It's not just this one time, hey, it's going to only happen in college, um, but we have to treat the root cause of it so it doesn't happen again. Um, Let's talk about the middle age. <laughs> so middle-aged folks as you, yeah. you know, said earlier the middle-aged people like myself metabolism is slowing down um and you know we find ourselves myself included we gain weight a lot easier <laughs> in, in middle <laughs> yeah. age um is it still reasonable for us to expect to get down to it doesn't have to be our our weight from when we were in college but you know, even our thirties, is it reasonable for us to say, yeah, I could probably get back to that weight and still have the energy availability we need to continue to, to be an endurance athlete? I think so. I think it's definitely possible. I think we have to consider all the other factors that are going into it too. Um, you know, many of us, myself included, we're raising families. We are, we have a lot more demands on our time. Um, and those are those social factors that can, kind of interfere with our ideal eating habits, if you will, Mm -hmm. (laughs) those ideal ways to fuel our body. Well, you know, my kid has a soccer game and, you know, we're going to run by, um, you know, and grab some fast food afterwards because we need to get home to get in bed because he has a test tomorrow as well. Like these are things that, you know, us as individuals, so we're not necessarily dealing with, um, you know, the soccer game, the feeling, but Mm -hmm. we are, our food choices are impacted as a result of that. And so we have to look at, you know, what are those outside environmental factors that are happening? We also have to look at our physiological factors. So, you know, yes, we are aging. Yes, our metabolism is slowing. If we are women, um, we're looking at menopause or perimenopause and how, how that impacts our nutrition. And, you know, as we cross that threshold, you know, then we need more protein. And what is the, uh, the correlation between protein and, carbohydrate how do we balance that out so we're not you know getting this bloat if you will i hear this all the time (laughs) um and you know then we have to look at okay so we have our biological factors too the age that we mentioned the physiological you know that we're also looking at maybe there is a history there of disordered eating or in some cases i see frequent dieting i think this is a lot that has plagued us um especially growing up in the 80s and 90s where diets were very prevalent. Um, We saw our parents doing them. We ourselves probably partook in them. And now it's we're finding out that these diets are actually wreaking havoc on us. And we're trying to get out of that mindset, but also 
we saw that they worked. And so well, I just need to try this one diet this one more time, but mm-hmm. it's long-term, not sustainable. Long-term it's building back that extra, you know, body uh, fat composition. And so that's not what we want. So we have to figure out, okay, what is a sustainable approach to nutrition? What does this look like for me as an individual taking into account my environment, my biology, my psychology, and all of these things that kind of play into our food choices and how, um, our body is composition, our body composition overall. Right on. Um, with everything that you were just saying, it brings up the question about cortisol. The stress on cortisol. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, cortisol. <laughs> let's talk about cortisol for a moment because I think we all have some some pretty high levels at time. How does <laughs> that affect us um, and uh, and our eating? Um, so cortisol levels are elevated when we wake up in the morning. This is a good thing. They're supposed to be, they are great. Whenever we go into, um, exercise, the problem comes is whenever they stay elevated and that's what we're seeing is more prevalent now, especially with high stress jobs, um, family demands, um, other things along those lines. And when they're staying elevated, cortisol actually basically inhibits the metabolism of fat to put it very, very simply, I'm not getting into the details of it, but, um, when they're elevated, our metabolism, if you will, to use that big term again, um, it just doesn't work properly. The hormones don't work as well. And that's exactly what cortisol is, is it is a hormone. And so we want to work with our cortisol levels and not against them. So managing our stress, (laughs) managing our sleep schedule, which is another one. And then, you know, having a routine of eating schedule too. Um, a sporadic eating um, schedule actually disrupts that cortisol level too. So looking at all of those things that can help manage our cortisol levels, um, easier said than done. Right. <laughs> right. Um, another big piece that, um, you know, we as athletes need to consider too, is our hydration levels. Oh, yeah. Um, would you go ahead and just touch base on, on hydration and, and some guidelines that folks should be thinking about? Um, yeah, hydration. It's such an individualized, um, niche in nutrition. Generally speaking, most generally speaking, um, the more we exercise, the more, uh, the more fluid we need. Um, when we are exercising and, you know, let's say we're going on a run and, you know, we want to make sure that we also have some carbohydrate to help bring that water in to utilize it. If we don't have carbohydrate in the fluid, isn't going to impact us as well. So, um, I usually recommend about at least 90 ounces per day, uh, for individuals that as a starting point, I will say most people that I work with are not there. (laughs) Um, and they're like, well, you know, I just drink and, uh, you know, before my run and after run and, you know, I forget to do it throughout the rest of the day. And I'm like, okay, well, we have to figure out how to get this working for you. (laughs) You're going to have more energy whenever you are well hydrated, you're going to be able to perform better. So let's look at this. Um, the biggest complaint I see is, well, I don't want to be going to the bathroom all the day, all the time. (laughs) Like I'm just going to pee all the time. I'm like, I, um, that's not what we want. Um, but start, you know, I say, let's start with half this. Okay. You're drinking 40 ounces a day. That's great. We'll start with that. And for the next three days, you're going to drink 50 ounces. And after that, you know, we're, let's bump it up 10 ounces until we're reaching that 90, uh, 90 ounce mark every time. And so we can get, be very consistent there. Right on. Um, so you, you kind of touched on, um, that there's so many different, um, uh, I hate to label them as diets, but there, you know, so many different nutrition trends out there right now. 
Um, and it makes, uh, as a runner, it makes our relationship with food complicated. <laughs> um, and it, myself, in my own personal journey, I had my primary care physician recommend a low carbohydrate diet for me um, as a way of uh, weight maintenance and loss. Um, and so, you know, can you speak to some of these things? Cause you, you started to touch on it and say that it's, it's, you know, some of these are not sustainable with our relationship with food. You know, is there some, some healthy guidelines, some things that we should stay away from? Is there times that we can do this? Uh, you know, I've heard of, um, kind of making it more of a, um, how would you term it? Um, using specific times in your training, to eat in certain ways. So for instance, in like the base training, perhaps you're lower carbohydrate because you're, you're doing lower um, endurance or higher endurance, more aerobic activity. So you're not as reliant on carbohydrates. Whereas in, once you start getting into competition phase and starting to do more workouts, that's when you start bringing in more carbohydrates into the diet because your body's going to rely on to, you know, the carbohydrates more so. And then as you get into the race, you know, you, you're still taking carbohydrates, but you're diminishing because your your volume's diminishing. Does that make sense? Have you? <laughs> it does all make sense. So I'm going to break this up into a few different parts. Okay. Um, so let's talk about diets and let's talk about like how to titrate for a training schedule too. Sure. Um, so you mentioned diets, low carb. Can I ask you, are you still doing this low carb diet? No. <laughs> Did it work for you? It, I lost weight. I lost significant weight, but, um, you know, I could also say that I wasn't eating as much processed foods. Um, but you know, having, I had a discussion with a sports nutritionist and it just wasn't pleasant. <laughs> like I, didn't, I didn't enjoy my, my, you know, my eating experience because I was feeling like I was missing out on so much. Um, exactly. I think that's where, does it work short term? Yes. It makes sense that it works, mm -hmm. but at what cost, what cost is it impacting our social interactions with others is it right. impacting our you know our mood mm -hmm. um our do we not have enough energy on board to feel happy and to express ourselves well yeah. so all these things really do play into effect now i'm not like anti diet if it's going to be something that's going to be long term and sustainable and you enjoy it and this is this is your lifestyle you know we can say this about very um you know a vegan diet for example mm -hmm. Um, you know, if this is something that you really enjoy, you're very motivated for it. This can be a very long-term healthy approach to eating. Now, if it's going to be something that's short-term, let's take a, a quick, you know, Atkins diet, for example. I know this is like the, the stereotypical one from the nineties, but it's low carb, it's quick. It's, you know, you, um, you lose a lot of weight very quickly. Um, a lot of people that I've worked with that have done this, for example, have gained it back. And why is it? Well, it wasn't sustainable. It um, impacted their social relationships and it was not enjoyable. Mm -hmm. So all these things also play in fact of an impact on like our food choices and what we decide to do and what we decide to eat and our relationship with food, as you said, like that relationship with food is so critical and um, we don't want to shame ourselves by eating something quote unquote bad. There's, um, there are no bad foods unless they're like rotten or they give you um, an allergic reaction. Like these are things that, you know, those are bad foods for you as an individual. Um, but there are no inherently bad foods. And so 
by having that poor relationship with food or having this diet mentality, it's training our minds to shame ourselves or feel bad about ourselves because of a food choice when that shouldn't be the case. For example, birthday cake. You know, if I had a piece of birthday cake, um, then, you know, this is a celebratory food. This is something that we should be really happy. We shouldn't go back, you know, oh my gosh, I felt so, I am such a bad person. I had birthday cake. And I'm like, no, you, you celebrated a birthday. You, that's a normal reaction. And we want to have that normal reaction around foods. So by perpetuating this diet mentality, we're perpetuating the shame essentially. And so that's putting us down this road of, you know, harming ourselves mentally, physically, if, if that's the case too. So that's my tangent on the diet. So you right. asked about, you know, when is it appropriate then, you know, in a training schedule? Um, I always say, if you are in the middle of a training schedule, what are your goals? Are, is your goal to lose weight or is it to perform better? Because you can't have both. And I'm very honest with the clients that I work with. I say, you got to choose one. Um, you know, if you choose performance, Weight loss may or may not happen. It's just the honest truth, but you're going to perform better. You're going to fuel your body well. And again, I, I can say this personally, if I'm in a training cycle, I'm gaining weight. <laughs> like <laughs> this is not a bad thing. It's, I felt more powerful. This is something that's very positive, but um, it doesn't always happen for people. Some people lose weight. Anyway, it's very individualized. It's one of my approaches <laughs> for this. So when you're in your training cycle, you have one focus. It's either performance or weight loss. You decide, and then we go for that goal. On the off season, or if you know we're doing periodization training, those are the times that we are going to look at weight loss or managing it. As you mentioned earlier, it's going to be okay. What does my carbohydrate intake look like during this time? And that's directly affected by what your energy needs are. So if you have longer training hours, you're going to have higher carbohydrate needs, which means that we're going to adjust for your protein and fat intake as well. So. It all plays together. So you're not wrong on any of this. Yes, you're going to need higher um, carb beans during training, lower carbs on the off season, or maybe you are, you know, you have a periodization where you're really focused on strength and muscle building, uh, which is great. Um, all about that. And so we're going to look at protein intake and hypertrophy and how we can adjust your macronutrients to really build that muscle and support you in that way. So it just really depends on where you're at in your training what your primary goals are and that adjusts your nutrition. Okay. Does that um, answer that? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other piece of it too, uh, and this has become something of uh, a debate and I hear, um, I hear more side on one tail, but I want you to kind of talk about it from, you know, your professional stance um, running fasted. Uh, the, a lot of times, and it may not be intentional. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, yeah. I've told the story many times of myself, like I didn't realize like what I was doing by not eating prior to a run. And it wasn't intentional. Uh, like yeah. I, you know, it was just, as you said earlier, I got to get the kids to school and then I got to get out the door and get my run in. Right. Like it was, mm -hmm. I, I was focused on everybody else. And then I was like, Oh, gotta get my run in. And in that process, I totally skipped out on eating. Right. Yeah. So, what does that do to the body? Is it okay to do that? Is it okay to do that sporadically, you know, or should you be intentional with consuming some sort of, you know, uh, carbs uh, prior to a run? Yeah. So you're not wrong. Uh, it happens. And I've had many arguments with my husband about this too. Um, <laughs> so for one, males and females are different in how they metabolize it and how they utilize, um, you know, fasting versus not. Um, 
as a general rule, no one should exercise fasted. Um, with that, again, we talked about those cortisol levels, those increase, it's going to decrease your performance level. You know, um, you may feel nauseated quicker, not be able to run as hard, all these kinds of different factors. Um, so, but you might not be able to tell it because you're very used to it. Um, so there's that, but the reality is you're going to perform better when you have fuel in your system. It's like starting a car. You're not going to you know, expect it to go without some gas, maybe it'll putter along, but without the fuel or the energy in this case, it's not going to go as fast or for as long as if you didn't. Um, that being said, yes, you're correct. Like, let's be intentional about it. What does that look like? Well, I've had people say, okay, I get up for, um, I go for my run at five. I don't have time to eat anything before I'm out the door. Okay. Well then let's, let's start feeling as soon as you're you're out the door and maybe you're going to sip, you know, four ounces of apple juice, um, you know, as you are putting your uh, socks and shoes on, for example, anything little is going to be really impactful there. Um, start small. So if you're not used to eating before you're running, then start with a little something. It doesn't have to be big, but getting something in your system is going to be better than nothing at all. And if you can't do it, let's say I've heard, you know, I get nauseous on uh, my stomach is upset. Like I just can't do it beforehand. Again, that's whenever, you know, start as soon as you start going, that's when you can start feeling whether it's, you know, a chew or, you know, some Gatorade in your water bottle, whatever it is that works for you as an individual. And that's going to be different than the next person too. Um, but I'm very much against exercise. I just don't think it's going to benefit your body long-term. You're, um, you're not going to perform as well. And, um, especially for females, it's just not, not good. No, perfect. And so uh, it's very individualistic. So everybody's going to be different to note like what's, what's enough and what's too much. Correct. Exactly. Um, I would say and even more so what works and what doesn't like, again, I mentioned my husband, like, he's like, I'm just going to have a banana, like half a banana before I go swim in the mornings. I'm like, okay, that, that works. If I had that, the banana would be all over the deck. Like that's, <laughs> that's not going to be what works for me. Give right. me a, a few sheets of graham crackers and I'll be fine. <laughs> but you know, you gotta, you gotta play around with it. And that's the fun part about nutrition. Like nutrition is fun. You should have fun with it and figuring it out. Like that's part of your training as an athlete is figuring out what works for you. Like just as much as you're figuring out, you know, your routes, like you're, you're figuring out your nutrition at the same time. So play around with it, figure out what works. Um, and what doesn't, because inevitably you're going to find something that's like, oh, this is, this is not working for me. <laughs> and that's, that's good to know too. It's all tools for the toolbox that make you a better runner, a better performer, and, um, really help you enjoy your run because that's, that's what it's all about is right. how do you enjoy your run? How do you enjoy your lifestyle? And, um, when we're talking about kind of round it up, like disordered eating is, you know, this inability to actually enjoy the food that we're eating. And so that's what we want. All of it comes together. <laughs> Perfect. That's that's a great way to kind of summarize what we've been talking about. But is there anything that we haven't discussed that, you know, it would be remiss not to mention? Oh, well, I think we touched on it so much. I don't know. <laughs> well, what about you? Oh, there's so many questions that we can go into, you know, from <laughs> from a, a list of, you know, things that we talked about. But I think that's a, we've, you know, really touched on some great things and give people some, some things to think about. So I appreciate Um, that. I do have one more thing. Sorry. Absolutely. I, th I, I would be amiss um, not to mention this, especially as talking about eating disorders and disordered eating sure. is what do you do to help? And well, maybe if you're not the one that's impacted with disordered eating, um, 
but maybe you know someone that is. And mm-hmm. I really encourage everyone to educate yourselves, learn about eating disorders. You're already doing the first step by listening to this podcast um, and t- taking this approach, but be honest and be vocal about your concerns. If you do know someone that may be experiencing an eating disorder or disordered eating, um, you can be caring, but firm, like you are concerned, you are there to help them. Um, and so you are a great role model, especially coaches, um, adults, um, you know, figures or parental role models, things along those. And then seek out help if this is something beyond your control is, you know, go to a dietitian, go to your primary care um, therapist or primary care physician or mental health therapist, even your PT. Like these are people that are in your corner that can help you, you know, find the resources that you need to help manage your food and your relationship with food. And as, as an outsider, if you're looking in on somebody else's, you know, potential problem. Um, what would that conversation look like? What, what do you suggest? How would you go about approaching or broaching that subject with somebody you're concerned for? Um, a lot of times you say, Hey, you know, I've noticed a change. Um, you know, I, I don't see that, you know, specifically for coaches that you're fueling up, you know, after this run today, what's going on. Um, so just opening an open-ended question, giving them an opportunity to answer is going to be a great place to start. Hey, you know, you seem really stressed, you know, is everything okay? Or, Hey, I I see that, you know, you know, you're, there's some physical changes in you. Like, you know, maybe weight isn't the thing that you want to point out, but maybe you say, I see that you're more irritable. Uh, What's going on. So giving them an opportunity to answer uh, in an honest way or, or say, you know, I'm concerned about this. This is something that is not, not typical for you. What's, uh, what's going on again, just ask. <laughs> yeah. Any other resources that you might point either side to the, the concerned party or the party that potentially has a disorder? Yeah. Um, national eating disorders.org is a great resource. They're the ones that, um, are promoting this uh, national eating disorder awareness week. Um, uh, in addition, like I mentioned, your primary care physician, um, is another great resource. Coaches, you guys are resources as well. Um, and a very um, primary one, parents have a role in this and as the, part of the team that I mentioned earlier. But if you're wanting to learn more about eating disorders, um, start with nationaleatingdisorders.org. Fantastic. Um, I was um, alerted to a book and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this book, but it's Treating Athletes with Eating Disorders by Kate Bennett. Have you ever heard of that? I've heard of it. I have not read it. Gotcha. Um, you know, it's, it's for those that want to, you know, learn more, especially coaches, as you mentioned, we are, you know, a part of this team that you talk about, but this book is a great resource for, for coaches or athletes that are concerned. It will give them a little bit more education about, you know, what's going on and, you know, more insight. And hopefully it helps make that conversation easier if you do have a concern. Um, I'll put that in the show notes um, for, for everybody to check out because it is a, a great resource to have. Um, amazing, Kendra. Anything else? I think that's it. Okay. Um, how can people connect with you? Um, online, our website is fuelinglifenutrition.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram at dietitian Kendra and at Fueling Life Nutrition. There's two accounts there, but those are the easiest ways to connect with me. Right. I'll put that all in the show notes. Kendra, I really appreciate you sharing all this knowledge and and actually making us more aware 
of eating disorders and, and what they could potentially do to, to us or to someone we love. So thank you so much. Absolutely. I want to thank Kendra for coming on today and just sharing all of her knowledge uh, and experience with eating disorders and disordered eating and low energy availability. I really hope you took something away from it. And um, if you have questions, again, please reach out to Kendra. She is a wonderful resource and just uh, wants to help. So um, her contact, once again, will be in the show notes. So please reach out. She's fantastic. Uh, and um, other things that are going on, um, man, we've got, uh, <laughs> I've got a race this weekend uh, going up to West Virginia to race the Cabin Fever 50K. Looks like it's going to be some cooler temps, um, high of 39 on Saturday in, in Fayetteville, West Virginia, where we're heading. Um, but it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, got a fun field of runners, um, hopefully meet some new folks and experience some new trails. So I'm super excited for that. And then it's only five weeks after that that uh, the Heartbreaker 50-miler will take place. Uh, so, man, got a lot coming up. I uh, had a great run on Sunday with um, Tim Early. He's one of my athletes, and um, he's, he's trying to complete his first 50K at the Heartbreaker 50K, or I think it's 55K technically. <clears throat> but we had an awesome run. Um, Tim wanted to, to experience some new trails. So I took him on a route that, you know, had some really big climbs on it. We did about 16 and a half miles and got, um, about 4,700 feet of vertical gain, uh, and, and about the same of loss. So, uh, what a great run. So feeling better, um, getting stronger, uh, especially after being sick, it was nice to kind of get back out there. Uh, I can tell, um, you know, steep climbing is, is still not there. Uh, and, um, you're going to have to work on that a little bit. Um, yeah, I did a, a treadmill hike, um, on Monday. Uh, so, um, you know, did my long run Sunday and then jumped on the treadmill, tried to keep the heart rate in check. Uh, didn't let it get, um, really much above, um, 78% maximum heart rate. So zone three, I tried to keep it, you know, pretty controlled. I stayed in zone two for a good bit. My average heart rate was 124. My zone three starts somewhere right in there, 123, 124. So I did pretty good on keeping the heart rate low um, for having the incline at 20% grade. Did that three miles per hour. So I got over 3,100 feet of climbing in an hour, um, which, you know, is very similar to what I'll be experiencing at Hellbender um, is that kind of climbing. Um, so it replicates Hellbender a lot. Uh, but interesting research has just come out um, that Jason Coop reviewed in his research essentials for ultra running. If you don't subscribe to that newsletter, I would suggest it. This past month had a, just a wealth of information in the three articles or journals that they reviewed and talked about. Um, and the one being, uh, what does or what is the metabolic cost of um, uphills and downhills? Uh, the research suggests that there's actually more metabolic costs, in other words, that we burn more calories, um, more energy is expended by um, doing a variation in elevation gain. And that variation of elevation gain was found to have the highest metabolic cost between 8% and 15%. Um, so super interesting findings, uh, whereas, you know, a constant grade, uh, and even a steeper grade, because once you get steeper, it just becomes hard is harder. <laughs> hard is the same hard, no matter what, but that, that kind of window of eight to 15%. And that also includes eight to 15% of loss on the downhill. That variation is more metabolically, um, costly. So, you know, if we're doing, um, up and down, 
we should be practicing that kind of up and down, right? Whereas a steady grade isn't as metabolically isn't as metabolically costly. Um, in other words, based on the findings of this research, um, it was also found that steep downhills, especially over a long period of time, are very um, costly, metabolically costly. So, you know, it, it should impact what we're doing for fueling. So, you know, when we talk about, well, we're fueling this much ever so often, you know, whatever interval we so choose, we should also be looking at the course profile. If it's got a massive descent, you may need to consider consuming more calories. So some interesting findings from that. So again, if you're not subscribing to that, uh, I sub suggest subscribing to Coop's Research Essentials for ultra running because there is a lot there. And this month had some really great articles. Um, but that was one. So my consideration for, for training and, and my coaching is that, um, you know, not only to implement treadmill hiking, um, cause you know, typically we put it at, um, a certain percentage, your incline may only go up to 15%, but you can be, um, practicing more for this variation and making yourself, um, more efficient at that variation in grades by going up and down, you know, between eight and 15%. Um, so some, some pretty cool takeaways from that. Um, you know, again, you got to practice what you're doing. So, you know, to, to jack the treadmill up, like I did at 20%, you can do that every now and again, but uh, again, to kind of improve, um, you know, in your metabolic efficiency, it'd be good to create some variation in that incline. So some takeaways there for you. Um, otherwise, um, yeah, I mean, with this race coming up, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a good, uh, good, another stepping stone here did the South mountains half marathon. So this is the next step up. Um, I'm feeling good, feeling ready for it. Um, I know I can cover the distance, um, unsure as to what time to expect. Um, I haven't really done much to know where I'm at to, to kind of say I'm expecting to run this time, but uh, you know, the point of it is to, to go out, have a good time and experience this, um, this race. So that's what I'm gonna do. Um, other than that, uh, indoor track just finished up really proud of the kids. Um, my, uh, one, uh, athlete finished, uh, second in both the mile and the two mile, um, our four by four, um, which includes my son surprised, um, a number of people and came in third at the state meet. So this was all from the state meet this past weekend. Um, and, uh, man, it was, it was just great. Um, super, uh, super happy for, for the boys. Uh, my son PR in the 500. So that was really good. He's wanting to go on to the Adidas national meets in Virginia beach. So I'm um, hoping to take him there in mid March. Um, but we're already starting outdoor. So some good stuff coming around, really enjoying that. So really good stuff. Um, but other than that, uh, I hope your training goes well, as always, if you have questions, don't hesitate to reach out, happy to, uh, to reach out and, uh, and, you know, and, and answer any questions. Um, if you want to hear anything on the podcast, you have specific topics, questions, please like, let me know, reach out. There's a million different ways to contact me. They're all in the show notes. Um, happy to go over those in the podcast. Uh, next week I'll have Tara Pruitt on Tara is, um, she is the lead on the Asheville trail running film festival. Um, some cool stuff happened. Tara has been on in the past. Talk about the film festival. We're going to talk about this year, uh, what's going on, how it's, uh, you know, a part of the community, what it's trying to do and accomplish, what its goals are. Um, so, you know, uh, it, I've always enjoyed the film festival. Um, you know, I've, I've 
I've only been able to attend a, you know, a few times, but um, definitely want to make it this year. And uh, But we'll be talking about all that in next week's episode. So stay tuned for that. And until then, my friends, keep moving forward and enjoy your running. <laughs>